0: Well, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination, and I'm going to do a lot of hand waving up here today. Um, my number one uh, audiovisual tech is on a, on the road, and my number two audiovisual tech is home cleaning out our refrigerator, which quit at three o'clock this morning. So um, <clears throat> I'm going to have you use your imagination. Uh, try to recall some of these things as we go along. So we're going to be back in uh, Judges, chapter 7, verse 24. So you can open up your Bibles to that. Judges 7, uh, verse 24. All right, the... um, My fist up here represents the battle that Gideon uh, was involved with with the Midianites. He surrounded them, and uh, there was 135,000 of them. And uh, with the Lord leading the battle, the Lord winning the battle, the Lord providing the battle plan, um, he was successful. (laughs) Down here south of him is the uh, area of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim. And so uh, what remnant of the army uh, is left is fleeing south along the Jordan River over here, and they're looking to escape back across the river into uh, Midian, where they're from. (coughs) And so uh, Gideon has routed them, and uh, they've destroyed most of the army, and uh, now... Uh, it's a mopping up process uh, to try to destroy the rest. So there's still about 15,000 uh, soldiers of the Midianites, uh, Ishmaelites, and the Amalekites left. And so um, Gideon is uh, pursuing them. And then in verse 24, he calls in finally the uh, people from Ephraim to help in this pursuit since. Uh, The army is traveling along the Jordan into the area of Ephraim. Um, And so he calls in and and asks for their help uh, in this matter. Verse 24. And Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down to meet Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Verse 25, And they captured the two leaders of Midian, these are the generals, the army leaders, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Orab at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb, while they pursued the Midianites. And they brought the heads of Orb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. So once the battle is clearly won and, and victory is assured, uh, Gideon calls on Ephraim, uh, the disagreeable tribe that he was trying to avoid dealing with uh, early on. And so he relents and calls in for their help and reinforcements. They stationed themselves along the Jordan because you can't cross the Jordan at just any place. There are certain places where it's low enough, uh, shallow enough where you can cross. And uh, the one crossing that uh, Gideon refers to is Beth Barah, which apparently means the house of Ford. Now, this is not a dealership or anything. It's a Ford is where they can cross the river. And so the... The tribe of Ephraim are standing here and doing battle with the um, Midianites as they try to cross here. Uh, this is the spot that is referred to in John 128 as the place where John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River. It was under a different name, but it's the same location. So you might, if you were dealing symbolically here, you could say this was a place of judgment. Either judgment unto death, with Ephraim killing the soldiers, or judgment unto life, with John the Baptist baptizing uh, believers. Same location. Ephraim captured and killed Orb and Zib, the commanders. The place where they were killed became landmarks uh, for the following generations. Uh, the rock of Orb reminds us of the rock in which the Israelites uh, had been hiding in. Remember back in uh, chapter 6, they were hiding in caves. They were hiding amongst the rocks as the Midianites uh, would come in and, and oppress them. And now we see here uh, the Midianite enemy tries to hide in the rock area to escape their doom. The winepress of Zeb uh, reminds us of Gideon's threshing in the winepress. Gideon had been hiding from the Midianites, and now the Midianite leader is hiding from him. So we see um, the reversal of of what's going on here. And keeping in mind, this is all the Lord's doing. This is all God's doing. Um, He's the one that's brought the victory. He's the one that had the battle plan. He's the one that uh, gave uh, Gideon the strength. He's the one that chose the army of the 300. It was all in God's hands. And so I wanted to read a verse here kind of uh, symbolizes that idea that God is the one who's the commander. God is the one who's in control. And this comes from Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Who is this coming from Edom and Boaz uh, with his garments tainted crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those who was treading in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I tramped them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year of, for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, and in my wrath, I made them drink and poured their blood on the ground. So we have a vision here of Christ, um, our God, conquering these enemies, much the way we see happening here with Gideon. It was God who gave the power, gave the strength to do this. There's another theological point we could look at here, the crushing of Satan's head uh, from Genesis. Um, The text calls attention to the fact that the heads of Oreb and Zeb uh, were cut off and brought as trophies to Gideon, uh, Gideon being the anointed one, the uh, chosen one, and uh, the army has crushed the head of the uh, enemy, Satan, uh, symbolic... uh, what Genesis was referring to. So we see this repeated again. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the man of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done for us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. But he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaming of Ephraim better than the vintage of And God has given the leaders of Midian, Orb, and Zeb into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger towards him subsided when he said this thing. We take a look at Ephraim's attitude here. Ephraim took no joy in the Lord's victory. Their only concern was what was their own glory. It's all about me. They were furious not to have been included in the glories of battle, and they were challenging the Lord's anointed uh, leader here. But I found it interesting, Gideon's response is really right out of Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And that was the best response, I think, at this time. And we see that uh, their anger was subdued. Gideon compares the leftovers of Ephraim's grape harvest, the gleanings, with the choice vintage of Abiyazer's uh, which, uh, which was be- Ephraim's leftovers is better than their vintage. And so in saying this, he is comparing the two battles. Abiyazer's vintage is the battle with the 300 against the 135,000, while Ephraim's gleaning is the battle at the crossing of the Jordan. And Ephraim's gleanings were superior, he says, because you killed the two commanders, Orb and Zeb. But I don't know if you noticed, there was a mild rebuke in that passage. Gideon did say this to them God has given the leaders into your hands. It wasn't your efforts, it's only by the grace of God that they were delivered to you. This seemed to pacify or satisfy Ephraim. And they uh, calmed down and and, uh, let things ride. However, um, Ephraim did not learn their lesson. Uh, Their attitude actually got worse. Later on, we see that Japheth would treat them differently when when they threatened him. And they would receive what they deserved. For their sin in Judges chapter 12. Verse 4. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. And he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me. For they are weary, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalamuna, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Sukhoth said, Is the palm of Zeba and Zalemunah already in your hands, that we should have bread to your army? And Gideon said, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalemunah into my hand, Then I will thrash your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went on from there to Penel and spoke similarly to them. And the man of Penel answered him just as the man of Sokhoth had answered. So he spoke also to the man of Penel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. So we have a picture here of the larger army of Ephraim, um, and probably some of those that, of the 120,000 that um, Gideon sent back to the main camp, their responsibility was to mop up what was left to the Midianites along the Jordan. And Gideon and the 300 uh, pursued uh, the larger group across the Jordan in hot pursuit of the kings of Midian and there are 15,000 soldiers that was left. <clears throat> so again, if you can envision the Battle Jordan here, they cross the Jordan, and the first city they come to is Sokoff, and the next one is Penel, and the one after that is uh, where they're going to catch up to the, uh, to the army. So um, keep in mind what geography we're talking about here. Just a a comment here on verse 4. We might take a moment to think about the phrase, weary yet pursuing. Weary yet pursuing. What, uh, What lesson could we learn from that for our own Christian lives? You see here, people who are weary yet pursuing.
1: What's that? That is Christian. Yeah,
0: okay. Yes, most definitely. The, uh, we're being asked by God uh, that he is our strength and our power, and that's where our source comes from, uh, of our strength. We may physically be weary, but uh, we should continue to pursue on uh, in our daily walk just like Gideon is pursuing after the enemy. We, uh, we have enemies in our hearts. We have enemies about us. We're continue to pursuing after. So continue to pursue even though we're, we're weary. It's a reminder that even
1: the best of men can grow weary.
0: Yeah. The best of men can grow weary. Having had no chance to eat, though they could drink from the Jordan, Gideon asked for bread here uh, from the people of Sukkoth. And notice he's aware of their situation, I think. Uh, For seven years, um, uh, the Midianites have oppressed them, Um, not much more than barley bread. Uh, He didn't ask for any meat for his 300 men, he just asked for bread. And um, I think that's an important part that uh, he considered the people that he was asking you know, a favor from. He knew their condition, um, so he was asking for some help. Um, Deuteronomy 23 three through 4 tells us that God had cursed Moab and Ammon because they did not give bread to hungry Israel as they came out of Egypt. And Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 25, 34 through 40. So it's um, important to realize that Midian was uh, often allied with Moab and Ammon, and thus when Sokoth refused to help God's people, um, they were in fact identifying themselves with Moab, the Ammonites, and the Midianites. And keep in mind, this is a... Israel town. Penel and and Sukkoth are both, they weren't enemies, they were uh, part of the tribe of Gad, and uh, they were Israelite towns, and they were refusing to help Gideon here. So in effect they were siding with the Midianites with that refusal. They didn't want to take any risk with the Midianite kings still on the loose. They weren't sure exactly whether Uh, how the battle was going to go, and they didn't want to be hung out there to dry uh, if Gideon failed. The thing is that they lacked faith. They lacked faith in God. They lacked faith in God's anointed one. They lacked faith in God's ability uh, to do what he said to do, that he would do. there's an expression in this passage it says um, is the palm already in your hands that refers to the practice of chopping off the hands of the enemy it was the hand of Midian that oppressed Israel back in Judges 6-1 and to symbolize victory the hand of the enemy was cut off after he was killed just as the death of of the generals their heads were removed as well but uh, it was a symbol that uh, this enemy could no longer uh, wield a sword against Israel Gideon is confident that the Lord will give the victory by saying that he rebukes the Sokoth for their lack of faith so-called had chosen to identify itself with those nomads, the Ishmaelites and what was left of the Midianite army. Thus the fitting punishment for them is to be scourged with thorns which grow abundantly in the wilderness. And this kind of relates back to again, to Genesis where God told Adam that the earth would produce thorns and, and briars and uh, thistles. And so they were in the wilderness here, where the nomadic uh, tribes were, and that would be a fitting punishment uh, to them. Penel was a fortified city. Um, It had a tower, and that tower is uh, not uncommon. Uh, It's a watchtower where they could go up into the tower and watch for the enemy to come across the open areas. And quite often they would have a wall around the city, part of their fortification. And the tower was also a place where, of refuge where they would go in and try to hide against the enemy's attack.
1: Um,
0: they were not putting their faith and trust in the Lord. It was the Lord God who should be their mighty fortress. But they believed in their own skills, they believed in their own efforts believed in the one man-made tower to save and protect them. They trusted in their own defensive armaments rather than the Lord. So Gideon promised to return and tear down the tower. Verse 10. Now Ziba and Zelamunah were in Karkor and their armies with them about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east. For the fallen were 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of those who live in tents. And that refers to caravan routes. And those who live in tents were the nomads. So this area was a trade route through uh, this part of the world. So uh, Gideon followed this trade route or this caravan route uh, to make his attack and he came from the east of noah noba and jogbia and smote the camp when the camp was unsuspecting when zeba and zelamuna fled he pursued them and captured the two kings of midian zeba and zelamuna and routed the whole army Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of hers. So the tribes of Israel had already destroyed uh, a good part of the army, 120,000 men, leaving about 15,000 left. When they uh, encountered, the Midianites thought they were far enough ahead of the pursuing uh, Israelites that they could rest at (coughs) Karkor. And um, they were uh, tired, they were hungry, uh, just like the Israelites were. But they thought they were far enough ahead to take a rest. But unbeknownst to them, so again, if this is (coughs) Karkor, they came through Sokbor and Penel to Karkor. Gideon comes around this way, and attacks from this direction. They may have set up some defensive here, just in case, but they were not expecting an attack from the the other side. side. So um, um, these towns uh, were uh, helpful to Gideon uh, in this attack. Uh, They supported him, uh, the town of uh, Jagabiah and Noba. they aided in the attack uh, to destroy the rest of the army. So it says here that Gideon returned from the battle at the sun was rising. This is what uh, the term ascent of years means. The sun was coming up, and he returned from battle as the sun was rising. Again, we might be reminded of Deborah and her song, Um, where Deborah prayed that God's people would be like the rising of the sun in their strength. And so Gideon has fought all night, he's run all day, and he's fought all night again a second time. So now at the break of day, we see that Deborah's prayer has been answered. He returns with strength at the sunrise. This was at or near the town of Penel. Uh, this was also the same location where Jacob wrestled with God all night and crossed the river at the rising of the sun as well. So we see some similarities here uh, connecting the other biblical uh, passages. Verse 14. And he captured a youth of the men of Socorroth and questioned him, and the youth wrote down for him the princes of Sokorth and its elders, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sokorth and said, behold, Ziba and Zalamuna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, is the palm of Ziba and Zalemunah already in your hand, that we should give bread uh, to your men who are weary? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars and he made the men of Succoth acquainted with them uh, flogged them with them he whipped them with them 17 and he tore down the tower of Pinel and killed the men of the city now we're not sure whether he killed all the men at Pinel or whether it was just the leaders it might have that's probably what it was just the leaders of the city but uh, we have no, we can't be definite, sh- definitely sure on that. So we see that uh, Gideon used a very similar um, method of attacking Salkoth as we saw by way of Jericho. Um, it was, he used a spy uh, to give him information, and um, the same thing was done at the city of Lutz. Uh, using the spies' information, he was able to figure out who was in charge and then uh, uh, deal with the rulers of the city. So he scourged them with the thorns. And then Gideon not only tore down Penel's tower, but he killed uh, probably the leaders of that city as well. And so the question is, he killed men in Penel, but he didn't kill men in Socoff. Both cities were Israelite cities. Both had refused help. So somebody might say, why was he more severe with one as opposed to the other? (coughs) And the answer to that, as far as um, we don't know, Uh, Scripture doesn't tell us. Apparently, he had his reasons. And since he was not criticized in scripture for doing it this way, we assume that those reasons were good. It could be, and I'm just speculating here, that Penel's sin of trusting in their own tower was much more serious uh, than the sin of Sokos' refusal to feed them both of them were cities in gad and if you recall gad was the tribe that refused to help deborah in her efforts and um, so apparently they were very weak spiritually but uh, however uh, we also saw that there were two other cities and jagabia and nobody who helped Uh, so there was a couple of cities weak spiritually and a couple of cities that were helpful to get in. So then the question is okay, you, you punished these two cities. Uh, why didn't you do anything with Ephraim? Ephraim was berating you as the appointed one, um, making fun of you. So the question might be, what's, what was so different here? And it's probably because, yes, uh, Ephraim was selfish, and this is a sin, but Ephraim did fight on the Lord's side, and Ephraim is like that of the um, genuine Christian who has a besetting sin. He, he needs to be rebuked, and he needs to be uh, dealt with, but he doesn't need to have judgment passed on them. So uh, that could be the reason why uh, Gideon did not deal harshly with Ephraim. The Ephraim was in sin, but they weren't in open apostasy. Uh, but time would tell which way they would go. In Philippians 1, 15 through 19, Paul was able to rejoice when the gospel was preached by contentious men. And Paul knew that God would eventually deal with them and Gideon knew that probably as well because Japheth would deal with Ephraim by and by. Sogoth and Peniel, on the other hand, were faithless. And they were in apostasy. And they did not fight on the Lord's side. And since it's impossible to be neutral, either you are on the Lord's side or you're not. Um, they were. Against the Lord, they were for God's enemies, and therefore they were treated uh, in such a manner, uh, being judged likewise. Any points or thoughts up to this point you want to offer, contend, challenge? Yeah ja. So they were challenged. The Pharisees at that time, Christ was, yeah, yeah. I'll answer your question if you answer my question, and they, we don't know. Well, yeah. You get you're either for God or you're against God, and there's no neutral part here. And I'll make another comment a little bit further on about that as well, Dale. Very will be, yeah. We don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us, but that could have been how it came about. Okay, verse 18. Then he said to Ziba and Zem- Zemulah, tongue-tied here, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, they were like you, each one like the form of the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jeher, his firstborn, rise uh, rise and kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Then Ziba and Zalemunah said, rise up yourself and fall on us. For as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zelamuna and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels' necks. What happens here is, is kind of unclear. Um... Possibly Gideon does nothing wrong here. But more likely, this paragraph indicates a lapse of true obedience. This may be the beginning of Gideon's troubles that will befall him later in his life. Let's so pause and take a look. Let's put this problem in in the best light possible. In Deuteronomy 2013, it specifies that all the men of the enemy are to be killed. Now, however, suddenly it seems as if Gideon is treating it as a personal matter. There's nothing wrong with his asking about his brothers, but there seems to be something wrong with the statement: if only you had been if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. Well, Seems to go against Deuteronomy 20:13 in that regard. Before condemning Gideon, again, let's put this in the best light on the situation. Possibly, he already knew the answer to his question, and this is possibly the entire conversation was designed to make a symbolic or a theological point. As the Anointed One of Israel, it is my task to be the blood avenger of my brethren. What you have done to Israel as a whole, you have done in particular to my own brethren. And what I do to you to avenge the blood of my brethren is what God does to you to avenge all of his children. If you had left my family alone, you would also have left all of God's family alone. But when you attack my family, that's the same as attacking God's family. Because as the anointed one, I, I'm appointed as the Lord's agent. Thus, my personal vengeance is also the Lord's vengeance. That's a possibility that that's what he was thinking, probably going through his mind. But um, we could see here that um, what Gideon's avenging his family is similar to Christ avenging his saints. But it may be a stretch to make this interpretation. Um, it seems more likely to me that Gideon's failures uh, began here, like I said, that will become uh, more evident in later paragraphs. Assuming that Gideon has strayed from his holy purpose, we see him also make a stupid move. He wants his teenage son to slay Ziba and Zalamuna. And this would have been a humiliating thing for the two kings to have been slain by a raw youth. But it also indicates, again, Gideon is making it a family matter. Uh, Jethar, uh, however, is too young and timid to do it. And Gideon might have remembered that only a few months ago he was the timid young person, afraid as well. Uh, in the eyes of God. Yet now he expects his son, uh, who are 20 years younger than he, uh, to perform a a scary act, killing these two powerful and frightening kings. Uh, And we see here that Gideon does not show, in dealing with his son, the same kindness and grace that God showed dealing with him. So in effect, Gideon's personal vengeance falls flat here. So when we see uh, men depart from the Lord's ways, they begin to make stupid moves. And Gideon put in a humiliating position here of receiving good advice from his enemy. Be an example to your son, they say, for as a man, so is his strength. That is, uh, his son... The firstborn uh, son in the family is considered the strength of the man, and if the son isn't going to do it, does that mean you're a weak man? So they're kind of uh, dealing with uh, Gideon's pride here a little bit. Gideon, however, is uh, does eventually take them down, kill them, and Gideon's taken the spoils from the two kings, the ornaments. Uh, from the camel's uh, necks, which is acceptable according to Deuteronomy 20.14, spoils of war. Let's take a look at verse 22. Then the men in Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would make a request of you that each of you give me an earring or a nose ring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we will surely give them So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring uh, there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and besides the neck bands that were on their camel's necks. And Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in the city of Ophrah, Oprah. and all of Israel played the harlot with it, there so that it came a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore, and the land was undisturbed for forty years in the days of Gideon. The men of Israel did not uh, look with eyes of faith. They failed to see that it was the Lord who delivered them. They were given the credit to Gideon. And we've seen this in the past where I've mentioned that he who rules or he who uh, frees you has the right to rule over you. And Gideon... Uh, they're thinking, should be the ruler because he freed them from the Midianites. And he's saying, no, I wasn't me. The Lord delivered you, and the Lord should rule over you. And the men wanted them to establish a dynasty. And thus it is clear, uh, clearly their desire to establish some form of humanistic kingship that will be ongoing and continuous. They do not want Gideon to merely be a judge. They want a king on the throne with a dynasty. And they're putting their trust for safety and security not in the Lord, but in the principle of centralized state or government. Gideon seems to take the Lord's direction here, for he rejects the crown offered to him and also rejects the notion of a dynasty. You might note in verse 22, explicitly states the principle that the the Savior is the Lord. And let me just end on this thought. Just um, people today who try to take Christ as Savior and separate it from Christ as Lord is in violation of this scripture. Gideon is saying, God is the one who freed you. God is the one who you should worship and rule over you. So we see that with Christ that saved us from our sins, and Christ is our Lord and ruler and king. So you can't, I don't believe you can separate those two. You can't have Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord. So the Lord saved you, so the Lord must be your king. Any thoughts, comments? Let's close in prayer. Brother Ken, would you close in prayer, please?